The night before I gave that reading I mentioned the other weekend, I had this overwhelming feeling that all the poems I had lined up to read absolutely sucked. I was totally convinced. I started having desperate thoughts about trying to fix them, changing lines. I was just so sure all of a sudden that all these poems were terrible. And it was really strange because I had read some of these at a reading last year and I felt like at that time every word was exactly where it should be. I felt really proud of them. One of them in particular had not only made it past an editor, but more importantly to me, had, I think, very genuinely impressed someone whose opinion I really care about. But for some reason, just before the time came, I thought, no, that poem sucks. It sucks. (laughs) It's terrible. I don't know what happened. I was reminded recently of W.S. Merwin's poem, Berryman, which I'm sure I've talked about before, and which addresses this conundrum directly. I had hardly begun to read. I asked, how can you ever be sure that what you write is really any good at all? And he said, you can't, you can't, you can never be sure. You die without knowing whether anything you wrote was any good. If you have to be sure, don't write. At that moment, the night before the reading, I was very definitely not sure, but I wanted to be sure. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could be sure? Isn't there some kind of test, some standard against which I can measure these poems so I can save myself from getting up in front of a mic or in this case, in front of my laptop and reading work that is just bad? Isn't there something I can use? It was my very kind and generous listener, Wallace, who reminded me of that Merwin poem. He was actually getting in touch about the episode where I tried to answer Kay's question about how to define poetry in general. And Wallace sent both of us a story by William James about squirrels. It's actually a lecture from 1906 called What Pragmatism Means. And it starts out recounting this argument, probably an imaginary argument, about a man who chases a squirrel around a tree. And the argument is about trying to decide, does the man go round the squirrel or not? I tell this trivial anecdote because it is a peculiarly simple example of what I wish now to speak of as the pragmatic method. The pragmatic method in such cases is to try to interpret each notion by tracing its respective practical consequences. What difference would it practically make to anyone if this notion rather than that notion were true? If no practical difference whatever can be traced, then the alternatives mean practically the same thing and all dispute is idle. Whenever a dispute is serious, we ought to be able to show some practical difference that must follow from one side or the other's being right. I sent the story on to Kay who pulled out the sentence It is astonishing to see how many philosophical disputes collapse into insignificance the moment you subject them to this simple test of tracing a concrete consequence. I have to admit that the lecture was a little bit beyond me. 
But as I understood it, as I understood William James, what he's saying is, before you try to pin something down, before you try to figure out whether it's A or B, you need to figure out whether the answer actually matters. A couple of people, Wallace included, came to the same question after listening to that episode about what poetry is and isn't. And they were pointing me in this direction of rather than trying to define poetry, which obviously doesn't matter, what if we try to define good poetry? Maybe that matters slightly more. Matt was one of the people to ask this question. Matt's been on Slee Ricketts and he's interviewed Matthew as well. It's a really good interview. But he challenged me because, as he put it, I think that Halsey poem you read was the best poem you've ever read on the show. Why is that poem embarrassing? So maybe this question has ever so slightly more of a concrete consequence than what is poetry? What is bad poetry? Let my heart be still and listen to what song of love let me feel the thrill of quiet we know nothing of. Oh, give me time for tenderness to hold your hand and understand. Forgive me time. Very helpful here is an essay that Ethan very kindly sent me by none other than Pauline Kael, the film critic, have read very little Pauline Kael, but always enjoy her criticism when I get around to it. The piece that Ethan sent me was published in Harper's in 1969, and it's called Trash, Art and the Movies. So already I'm, I'm completely on board. And this essay is so fantastic for so many reasons. There's a great bit where she talks at length about how terrible 2001 is. She says it's the biggest amateur movie of them all, which was so validating because I hate that film, (laughs) but I thought that I had to love it. I almost feel like I should just read the whole essay and that should be the episode. Ethan knows that I love trash, so he drew my attention to the section where Kale writes, If we've grown up at the movies, we know that good work is continuous not with the academic, respectable tradition, but with the glimpses of something good in trash. I love that. Something good in trash. It's a long piece, but it is so worth reading. Basically, she's fighting for trash on trash's terms. She's saying, don't try to make this lowbrow stuff secretly highbrow. Don't look for more in it than is actually there. It is trash. It is good because it is trash. She says, trash doesn't belong to the academic tradition, and that's part of the fun of trash, that you know or should know that you don't have to take it seriously, that it was never meant to be any more than frivolous and trifling and entertaining. That kind of thing is really good for me to hear because I can be really guilty of making that move trying to make something more of a pop song or a reality show so I can feel like it's okay that I like it. I recently watched this movie called The Only Living Boy in New York, which is really just another excuse for us as viewers to imagine what it would be like to live in New York with lots of money and have a very complicated love life, in this case involving Kate Beckinsale. It was total trash and it was great. I had a great time. There's nothing more to uncover there. 
At one point in the essay, Kale mentions this movie called Dark Victory. It's a Betty Davis movie. It's from 1939. It's schmaltzy. It's a romance. Davis has, she has a brain tumor. She's, she's got glioma. And she falls in love with the neurosurgeon who cures her. And P.S. Humphrey Bogart is a stable hand. <laughs> He's completely wasted in the movie. But what Kale says about it is the pleasures of this kind of trash are not intellectually defensible. But why should pleasure need justification? What then, Michael? The nights I've laid awake thinking of you. The things I've wanted to say to you ever since I first laid eyes on you. Afraid. Is it because I'm a stable hand, is it? No, Michael, it isn't that. This movie is so schmaltzy. It is trash. But it's a real pleasure to watch. It's the kind of movie that you want someone else sitting next to you so that you can just scream at each other about what the characters are doing and the weird choices of costuming and editing and dialogue. It's really, really fun. So I'm completely on board with... Pauline Kale's argument here. But as I was reading the essay, I was thinking about whether I could replace the word movie with the word poem and thinking about whether the same rules apply. Just as an example, I've switched the words around in these lines. How well we all know that cheap depression that settles on us when our hopes and expectations are disappointed again. Alienation is the most common state of the knowledgeable poetry audience. We long to be surprised out of it, to pleasure, to something a man can call good without self-disgust. A good poem can take you out of your dull funk and the hopelessness that so often goes with slipping into a theater. A good poem can make you feel alive again, in contact, not just lost in another city. Good poems can make you care, make you believe in possibilities again, if somewhere in the Hollywood entertainment world, someone has managed to break through with something that speaks to you, then it isn't all corruption. So that all works, but it starts to break down when Kale starts talking about the pleasures of trash. I couldn't replace the word movie with the word poem in this paragraph. The movie doesn't have to be great. It can be stupid and empty, and you can still have the joy of a good performance or the joy in just a good line. The romance of movies is not just in those stories and those people on the screen, but in the adolescent dream of meeting others who feel as you do about what you've seen. You do meet them, of course, and you know each other at once because you talk less about good movies than about what you love in bad movies. Because it's not the same with poems, right? We don't talk about what we love in bad poems. And generally you're alone anyway, so you end up in the cheap depression state that she talks about all on your own. And even if you do have a poetry friend who you can text about the latest bullshit that's been published in the New Yorker or something like that, uh, you're also a poet probably. So you're also on the hook. It's like we're a bunch of directors uncomfortably standing around a pool in L.A., talking about the latest terrible movie 
except we also have a movie that we're working on and we're quietly sweating about the fact that it might be terrible too. Why do you pay a doctor for advice and then disregard his advice? I didn't call him. Someone else called him. Oh, so you're taking orders from somebody else, are you? I've never taken orders from anyone. As long as I live, I'll never take orders from anyone. Now, I'll tell you something else. I'm well, absolutely well. I'm young and strong and nothing can touch me. And neither you nor Dr. Parsons can make an invalid out of me. And now I'm going. Wait! How do you keep yourself from being bad? What can you use? Even if you can never be sure, how can you be less unsure? I think the best I can do at this point in my self-education is to identify risks. Because I did start writing this episode months and months ago, and I tried to list out concrete reasons why a poem might be bad. But every time I came up with something to add to the list, I had this creeping feeling that there was probably someone out there who had done what I was talking about and somehow pulled it off. I did a poetry workshop earlier in the year and someone in the class said, you can get away with anything if you can get away with it. Which sort of makes no sense (laughs) and is kind of a koan, but it became a catchphrase for the class. You can get away with anything if you can get away with it. The risk is that you won't get away with it. I want to refer to another piece of writing that Wallace sent me. This quote from The History of Philosophy by A.C. Grayling. Wallace pointed me to this one section where Grayling's talking about an American philosopher called Charles Sanders Peirce, along with William James, and their idea of pragmatism. And the way that Grayling puts it is he talks about this idea of hardness. Our idea of hardness, of something being hard, is just our idea of what this means in practice, such as how difficult it is to break, scratch or pierce a hard thing. To define hardness in this way is similar to what is called an operational definition, saying what a thing is by saying what it does. This actually helps me a lot in trying to answer Matt's question. Why is the Halsey poem embarrassing? I think it's embarrassing because it embarrasses me. I felt embarrassed reading it. I felt embarrassed listening to myself read it. I felt embarrassed editing it and putting it out. (laughs) I felt embarrassed for her. I really like Halsey. And part of the reason for that is that in her music, the character she plays is this this lovesick person, but she's also very cool. She's a hot mess, but she's also a regal figure. Reading that poem, without any music to back it up, without any video clip, um, any of her personality, any of her character, it was like I was reading someone's diary. She's really exposed. She's She's being really earnest and raw. It's not to say that a poem can't be all those things and still be good. I mean, Berryman by W.S. Merwin, that poem basically is all those things. But it isn't only those things. Exposure on its own doesn't make a poem good. And I think with that Halsey poem, you could make an argument that it's a kind of capitulation. Because there is a public desire to see and know more and more and more about 
other people, perhaps women in particular. And if you've ever been to a strip club, which obviously I have never done, uh, you know that there's a moment where all the clothes are off and the dancer is completely naked. And at that moment, there's not really any desire. There's nowhere else to go. That's a huge risk to be standing there and to have your audience see everything and just shrug. Come on, sink, please. Thanks. Come on, boys. 50. Time for tenderness, Malcolm. I will never ask for more than you can give. Yet when you say, be gay today and live, my heart answers cautiously, today will soon be gone. Why rush to meet our destiny? Why must we hurry on? Oh, give me time for tenderness. I'm going to need more help here to unpack all this. I'm going to draw on the work of a poet and critic called Faye Zwicky. She was a West Australian poet. She only died recently in 2017. And I'm forever grateful to James Chang, who mentioned her book, The Liar in the Pawn Shop. I came across it in the University of Melbourne Library, and it is full of some of the best and most thoughtful poetry criticism I've ever read. Faye Zwicky is now my model for what good poetry criticism could look like. And she gets directly at this, this question of exposure or overexposure, in an essay called Poets and Critics, What Price Survival? She's talking about emotion versus control in poetry. That's putting it exceptionally simply, but that's what she's going for. She talks about a poet called Vicky Viticus, who I've recently learned very much took an emotion-first approach to her writing. She wrote her poems all at once, straight through. She didn't revise much at all. Zwicky quotes her as saying, My poems are written from direct emotional experiences. I believe creating should be and is as natural and integrated a process as cooking eggs for breakfast. Can see no distinction between a person wishing to express herself on the page or getting drunk and attempting to communicate verbally in a pub. And of course, I know people who write this way, and you probably know people who write this way as well. Faye Zwicky's comeback to this is, direct emotion or not, surely there's a difference between the quick fried egg and the well-tempered omelette, which even the claims of authenticity can't obliterate. Here the critic reaches a state of deadlock with the poet. Miss Viticus's belief in the transparent virtues of spontaneity, immediacy, a charge of energy released by both poet and audience in an instant spark of communion, is at odds with the conviction that art has a great deal to do with shape, form, control, and that a good poem shouldn't yield all its depths and resonances at a single glance. This essay was written in 1975. Isn't it incredible how we are still having this same conversation (laughs) Almost word for word. Facebooky goes on to write about another one of Viticus's poems in which she talks about sexual assault. The trouble with the confessional pursuit of the true self is that nakedness becomes a habit. The act of revelation, something which the poet is expected to perform. Following in the footsteps of the arch stripper 
Sylvia Plath, we have yet another female victim menaced by faceless sadism. Now, I read that and I thought, wow, that's a really unfair way to characterize Plath and probably Vicky Viticus as well. But I do like what she says about the act of revelation being something the poet is expected to perform. She's also talking in that essay about Michael Dransfield. But I think in the 1970s, this expectation to perform revelation would have been very much applied to poets who were women. Poets who at the time were referred to as women poets. And I think today, it's not it's not going too far to say you can see the same expectation applied to poets of colour, poets who don't fit gender expectations, poets who aren't what we've come to call neurotypical. I mean, God, maybe we're asking that of every poet of any stripe. We want exposure. We want nakedness. Someone does. I think part of what I was feeling just before I gave that reading was maybe these poems are only exposure. Maybe what I'm about to do is go and stand on the stage and the music will stop and the house lights will go up and it'll just be me. Nothing can hurt us now. What we have can't be destroyed. That's our victory. Our victory over the dark. That's one type of risk. I want to look at the other end of the spectrum. The risk of being too hidden. I want to go back to Kale, who says, Keeping in mind that simple good distinction that all art is entertainment, but not all entertainment is art, it might be a good idea to keep in mind also that if a movie is said to be a work of art and you don't enjoy it, the fault may be in you, but it's probably in the movie. Again, same conversation. We're still talking about this. How many times have you felt that? That a poem is said to be a work of art because it's published, you're reading it, but you don't enjoy it. Can we say the fault may be in you, but it's probably in the poem? And if we're going to define what a thing is by what a thing does, then a good poem has to do something that feels good, has to have a good effect, right? I was thinking the other week as well about a poem I once thought was very, very good. In fact, I'm 99% sure I talked about it on the show once. It's a poem by a guy called Andrew Zawacki, and it's called Georgia. It's from his collection, Petals of Zero, Petals of One. This poem was so important to me. I have no idea how I came across it, but it turned into what I call a talisman poem. It was one of those poems that really helped me to feel less alone. It starts out like this. I don't sleep, Georgia. I shoot bullets into the dark. The blunt mimeographic dark. The middle dark, Georgia outside the outside. I loved that. At the time I came across this poem, I was very, very sleepless. I was very stressed out. I had, uh, you know, <laughs> one of my many very shitty office jobs and it was uh, slowly eating me alive. And I just loved that first line. But I think, I think I only had access to part of the poem, maybe only the first part. 
So eventually I bought the book that I knew the full poem was from and I read the whole thing and it didn't have a good effect. It goes on like this. All things that are unlit, Georgia. Black like lapis in a quitted room. The feedback, Georgia. The anvil's hymnal. A dial tone looped in a flophouse, Georgia. An explosive packed in a microchip. Petals of zero, petals of one. Rips a hole of fractal dimension. Shrapnel, Georgia. Collateral damage. Call it what you will. I still really enjoy the repetition, but I don't like the word choices. I don't like the way the meaning breaks down. The more I read of it, the more I realized that this poem was no longer helping me to feel less alone the way that it did in my shitty office job. It was making me feel more alone. I'm going to turn back to Zwicky again. She has another great essay about reading Les Murray and feeling alienated. Uh, It's an essay called Language or Speech, A Colonial Dilemma. It's from the early 1980s. And she writes, This is a poetry arguing for the virtue of difficult ambitions in a cultural context artistically and intellectually unfavourable to thinking about this world or any other. It places the poet in an ambiguous and often self-defeating position. Does he want an audience or doesn't he? Language may function in a vacuum, but speech requires a listener. Murray's occasional obscurities don't seem to stem from an effort to be understood. They appear to arise out of an almost ostentatious and paradoxically motivated determination to stand out against easy options. Clearing himself of the charge of courting facile acclaim, while revealing himself famished for it. It's a huge risk to retreat entirely into language, I think. To be totally seduced by it. Language is the tool that we're using, but it isn't everything. It can't be everything. Now, you might agree with me or not. You might think, well, it's not a risk to expose yourself. Uh, The more you expose yourself, the more likely you are to get your poem accepted and published and to get recognition and accolades. Or... You might make the opposite argument and say, no, obscurity is not a risk. Editors love a poem that could function in a vacuum that is totally in love with its own language. There's no risk there. But for me, both those things are a risk because I'm interested in what the poem can do. Amongst other things, Wallace also sent me an amazing poem by Kenneth Koch called The Art of Poetry. I was grateful for this for many reasons, a big one being that I have been trying to get through Horace's Ars Poetica for about a month, (laughs) and I just can't do it. I can't do it. It's too hard. This poem seems like a much better piece of writing by, by a huge margin, and look, maybe I've just got a bad translation, but yeah, I just can't get through that thing. The Art of Poetry by Kenneth Koch was much, much better. The section that jumped out at me was about the role of friends in helping you to write well. Koch says this, There is, it would seem, a sense in which one must grow and develop, and yet stay young. Not peroxide, not stupid, not transplanting hair to look peppy, but young in one's heart. And for this, it is a good idea to have some friends who write as well as you do 
who know what you are doing and know when you are doing something wrong. They should have qualities that you can never have to keep you continually striving up an impossible hill. These friends should supply such competition as will make you, at times, very uncomfortable. It seems to me that that's one way to measure. How uncomfortable are you? I was pretty damn uncomfortable before that reading. I wasn't confident that what I was about to read was going to have anything like the effect that I wanted. I was thinking about the people who might come along and thinking about how much I, I respect their work and, and I was just pretty sure I didn't measure up. I want to know that I'm having an effect. Maybe that's all I need to know. Big day. Oh, give me time to stop and bless the golden sunset of a summer day. Let my heart be still and listen to one song of love. Let me feel the thrill of quiet we know nothing of. Oh, give me time for mm. But it can't all be about whether your friends like it. <laughs> that can't be it. That that's that's not a great conclusion, I don't think. <laughs> I love Kenneth Coke, uh, what I've read of him, but and there's this whole there's way more to that poem than I have expressed there. But yeah, look, the friends are important, but it's about the effect, right? The effect. You want to know that you're having some kind of effect. That's the point I'm trying to make. Okay. Glad we're clear on that. Thanks to everyone who wrote in to uh, basically give me all the ideas for this. I had a lot of fun as always. Um, shout out also to the Sea Rickets boys who talked about risk this week as well. And so now we have a crossover. Do you believe me when I say this is coincidental? Up to you. Um, I would still really love you to send in any questions you have for my Ask Me Anything episode that I will hopefully be able to put together sometime over January. Whatever you want to ask, whatever you want to know, just hit me up. Love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Here's a little bit more from Dark Victory. Honestly, kind of the high point of my week. It's called glioma. Glioma? Oh, don't listen to him. It sounds like a kind of a plant. Yes, it is rather like a plant, parasitic one. If it's taken care of, well... All surgeons are alike, Judy. Don't be upset, darling. We can call in other doctors. We wait, hmm? Yes, yes, of course. But you have to face it sooner or later. Suppose we just don't talk about it anymore. 